Welcome to our Exchanges at Goldman Sachs Markets Update for Friday, January 22nd. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're going to step away from the markets a little bit and talk about bigger picture corporate strategy for Goldman Sachs. I'm joined by Stephen Schur, Goldman Sachs' Chief Financial Officer, CFO, who is here just after the firm reported fourth quarter earnings and gave the market a strategic update on the goals it laid out at last year's Investor Day. Stephen last joined us on the show last January 2020, right after that Investor Day. A lot's happened in the interim, so we'll have plenty to talk about, including the firm's performance during a challenging and historic year. So, Stephen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jake. So, a lot to discuss, but let's begin at the beginning, go back to January 2020. We just wrapped up an investor day where we literally and figuratively opened the doors to the firm for the first time last year. A few months later, the pandemic set in. Talk us through how the year evolved from your perspective and give us a couple critical moments from the height of the crisis. Well, I will say Investor Day seems quite distant at this point, though it was only a year. But the year was quite a different one. I mean, it started off kind of like any other, you know, with the exception of the intensity of preparation at the firm to, as you said, open the doors, invite our investors and other stakeholders in and kind of show ourselves off and give people a sense of where we as a new management team wanted to take the firm. And for the first time in our 150 year history, kind of set out some fairly public objectives for ourselves over the medium and long term. And so a lot of work went into it. The day came and went and COVID started to enter, you know, the kind of risk management dialogue in and around the firm, you know, exactly what was happening and how dramatic it could become and how it might affect the markets and therefore the firm. But, you know, to be completely candid, I don't think any of us had a sense of what would hit us. And then when the ramifications and the implications of COVID became very, very tangible was, you know, mid-March. And in mid-March, the entire U.S. financial system, not Goldman alone, sort of seized up in the context of just the sheer volume of activity that was going on. And the industry and all banks became somewhat beset by operational challenges, which started to pull away liquidity from the banks. Transactions were not being processed. Counterparties didn't know who they were facing. And the banks really got together in a somewhat unique and collegial way to try to work through that operational challenge. And then that kind of opened the door to, you know, a fairly long march, if you will, you know, through to the end of the year and managing through a variety of different issues, including, you know, what we always look at minding our liquidity, minding our capital, and at the same time, being quite attentive to what was then the increasing needs of our clients in and around the firm. So one of my favorite Goldman phrases, it's not exclusive to Goldman, but it's particularly popular here. When I first got to the firm, I heard the phrase mark to market and become part of my lexicon as well. Last year at the strategic update, you essentially marked the firm to market. What were the goals you laid out in Investor Day and how's the firm tracking mark us to market today? Sure. So just to mark us to market against those objectives. So we set goals for ourselves. We told the world that we had the ambition over the next then three years, so through to 2022, of hitting a certain return threshold. So our ROE would be better than 13%. Our ROTE would be better than 14%. And just to, again, mark ourselves to market, you know, we produced and as reported, 11.1% ROE. But if one excludes the sizable and somewhat unique litigation expenses that we took, 
you know, for all practical purposes, that would have put us at a 15% ROE. So ahead of the 13% we set, you know, as a threshold. We said that we would achieve by 2022 annual expense efficiencies of $1.3 billion. That is each year in 2022 and beyond, the firm would operate at a more efficient level, and that would be measured by $1.3 billion of expenses. And again, to mark ourselves, we are now only through 2020, about 50% of the way there. We said that we would achieve a certain level of funding optimization, where we would raise by 2022, $100 billion of deposits, and we are at 70 through 2020, and that we would achieve $1 billion of savings, that is revenue enhancement, you know, by virtue of lowering our cost of funds and managing our liquidity better than we did. Now, on that one, and we were quite candid with the market just the other day on our earnings call and the update, on one hand, we've achieved more than we thought in terms of the quantum of deposits we've taken in. But given where rates moved over the course of this year, we haven't yet achieved what we would have liked in the context of savings associated with funding optimization. It's in part because rates fell, Fed funds fell by about 150 basis points or more in the year. And our corresponding cost for deposits did not come down as quickly. And so kind of to put it in simple terms, our deposits are still very valuable to us relative to wholesale funding, but they weren't as valuable as we had forecast. Now, since we have brought down the cost of our retail deposits, they're now at about 50 basis points. And so we're quite confident that by 2022, we will nonetheless you know, achieve that target. And so those are some of the objectives we set for ourselves at an enterprise level. So that's the enterprise level. Let's talk about the businesses. Last year, you and your team reorganized the firm's reporting to reflect actual businesses we run, to update it, really. How did the year play out in each of our businesses? And were there any surprises even during a year that was constantly surprising? So there were endless surprises, as you rightly sort of point out. So what we did, again, to refresh everyone, is that at the Investor Day back last January, we announced a reorganization of our external segments. And as you rightly say, it was meant to, as it ought to, reflect the way in which we manage the business. So we had investment banking, we had global markets, we had asset management, and we had consumer and wealth management as the four segments. And then we did, over the course of the year, further refinement to the way in which we developed both our divisions to be in line with segments and populated those businesses with leaders so that for each and every segment, there is one or two people that can step to the podium and own it. And remarkably, that's a little different than where we were before. And so when you look at each of the segments, each of the businesses, you know, I would say on the year, each performed exceptionally well in objective terms, but even more in the context of what we lived through over the course of 2020. So I'll just take one at a time if it suits you. And that is in investment banking, it was a roller coaster of a year. I mean, you know, it started off strong, but then March and April and in through May and June was a bit of a drought as it related to M&A activity for all the reasons one can imagine, just given the uncertainty that COVID brought on. And what we saw was more kind of rescue financing or financing on the part of healthy companies to extend out maturities or to refinance. By the time we got to the end of the year, all cylinders were firing, meaning 
you saw GDP, you know, now back on the rebound after a very precipitous drop in the second quarter. And that has given rise to confidence and therefore more strategic and M&A activity. And so, you know, investment banking worked its way out of kind of the mid-year gully in terms of pulling back to a level of activity that's now spilling over into January, just given the strength of backlog. Global markets, by contrast, didn't experience that downturn. In fact, just the opposite. It was in the depth of the crisis in through the second and third quarter that their resources, both financial and just human capital being brought to the table, were sort of most in need. And they stepped forward across all of equities and all businesses in FIC to really help our clients intermediate risk flows and react themselves to challenges that they were experiencing during the severity of the downturn. And so you saw global markets perform exceptionally well in the heat of the pandemic, reflecting all that is what we think is you know, good and great about our franchise in terms of risk and the like. And so you know, that played well. And then it continued strong throughout the year. In asset management, asset management was playing really to a strategic pivot, which was the firm is looking to, in effect, recalibrate itself such that we're doing less capital intensive on balance sheet investing and looking to raise more third party funds for which we look to make investments. And that got off, notwithstanding the fact that all meetings were over Zoom and the like, off to an extraordinary start with that group and that business raising about $40 billion of funds in these new funds. And perhaps most significantly doing it with a wider, broader, deeper client set that had not historically invested with Goldman Sachs. And so they turned that strategic pivot very well. And then finally, in consumer and wealth management, you know, the core business of wealth management continued to perform and stay close to clients in the volatility that the year showed us. And then equally, the consumer business is itself, you know, on a very positive pivot. Credit played well. It was managed well. Customer assistant plans were put in place. And so credit was managed well in consumer. And now we're about to pivot to the introduction of new products like checking and wealth that I think will round out you know, the business such that it's not a bespoke set of products, but more of a holistic or comprehensive business. So performance is obviously driven in part over the course of the year by just you know sheer top line revenue growth. The firm's revenues were up 22% over the course of the year because clients were busy and active and were transacting. But talk a little bit about some of the less glamorous side of the business, you know, efficiency efforts, risk management, operational execution. That was really challenged by the pandemic and remote work. Talk about how those areas drove performance as well. Yeah, sure. Well, look, first and foremost, I think it's important to call out just the nature of our 40,000 employees and the character that they demonstrated you know, notwithstanding all of the personal and professional challenges that COVID brought on, you know, in the 10 or 11 months that we've been living through this, there's not one day when the PL showed up late. There wasn't one day when risk reports weren't presented on time and accurate. And, you know, had you told me that as we were in the sort of darkest moments of March, I'm not sure I would have believed that, you know, to have ultimately been the case throughout the year, but it was. And, it says everything about the nature and character and diligence and talent that sits within the organization. I would say from a financial point of view, risk was obviously maintained and watched over. And frankly, it was done 
in a real hands-on way at the highest levels of the organization. Meaning, you know, you saw David as our CEO and John as our CEO and myself as the CFO each and every day during the most challenging moments of the crisis, sitting down every day and assessing risk with Brian Lee and his team. And that's an important observation. Nobody was calling it in, so to speak. And management of risk, we always talk about as being kind of foundational to the firm, but you really saw it in all of its trappings during the volatility that the crisis presented. And then I'd say, you know, on the business side, and particularly within global markets, being able to manage risk and intermediate flows requires kind of a risk calibration such you continue to see velocity turn in balance sheet. You know, you don't want to be lugging around, so to speak, you know, quantum of risk in a difficult market, even if it is to facilitate client flows. And so our team was really pretty agile in terms of how they managed risk. And then lastly, the way in which you know, controllers and treasury help manage the kind of roller coaster ride on both liquidity and capital. By the way, amidst all of what was going on in COVID, obviously we were hit with a CCAR result in 2020 that was surprising and surprising to the high side. Yet, you know, the organization didn't miss a beat and rallied to sort of the capital level it needed to be at without, I think, you know, sacrificing the ability for us to serve our clients. So we Goldman it prides itself on its technological prowess, and we've always viewed Goldman as a sort of having a competitive advantage there. Across a lot of different industries, people talked about how technology has gone fast forward in different industries. What did that look like at the bank? And what technological innovations moved faster than you would have expected at the beginning of the year? Well, I would say right out of the box, okay, the ability to facilitate the functioning of the firm across 40,000 offices, namely everybody's living room and bedroom and closet, you know, all came to the screaming, you know, front edge of what needed to get done. And our technology teams were in a position to make sure that we had all that we needed such that all 40,000 of us, certainly at the beginning, could work from home and the firm would be functioning. And it was of a more profound and no doubt longer timeline, I would say two things. One, in the incumbent businesses, so let's take global markets, the introduction of significant digital trading platforms became ever more relevant in COVID. So you saw a desire on the part of clients to orchestrate big portfolio trades and to do it on our digital platform, whether that was in credit or in commodities. And part of that, I think, was already in the works, but its acceleration sort of came about through COVID. And we never thought that it was only us that was working at home, but rather our clients were working at home. And so the ability to use digital platforms was basically Goldman Sachs meeting its clients where they wanted to transact business. And I think that accelerated what inevitably was a shift already in play you know, for more digital trading platforms. And I think it says a lot about the firm. The firm has historically been known as kind of labor intensive, low volume, high touch. And now we've introduced on an accelerated basis, kind of low touch, high volume, digital transacting. And that moved us along pretty hard. And I think it spoke to the competency of our technology teams and the business to do it. The second one is in the new businesses. And so 
the introduction and the acceleration and the continued build around transaction banking and our consumer platform kind of went on unabated. And, you know, we're now with 200 plus clients on our transaction banking platform and millions of customers on our consumer platform. And again, about to launch into both Marcus Invest and our checking platform as well. So one of the questions that came up time and time again on the call with investors and analysts was whether the performance that Goldman delivered over the course of 2020 is sustainable. And that question got asked a whole bunch of different ways, but it basically boils down to this, like how much of the success that we saw last year and the profitability that the firm was able to deliver was unique to the environment of last year, which was not a normal one by any stretch of the imagination. So to be plain spoken about it, there's some that I'm confident in, and there's some aspects of the answer to that question that I just don't know. What I'm confident in is that the firm has structurally changed the way in which it's running certain of its businesses. Let's just take global markets as an example. We've taken cost out of that business. We've redeployed capital to higher returning proposition in that business. But maybe most significantly to the question is we've taken our wallet share up, meaning we've grown wallet share by about 120 basis points in that business, meaning we're capturing more of what the client is spending. And another indicator of that is, you know, the focus on the client relationship as opposed to the transaction has put us in a position where, as we said at Investor Day, we aim to be in the top three among the top 100 most prolific, most significant clients in global markets. And we were at about 51. We've now moved into the mid-60s, just in terms of the number of clients where we view ourselves as number three. So that's the part I know. I know we have greater wallet share. I know we have greater client relationships. I know that we are deploying capital better. And I know that we're more agile in the context of the way in which we are growing our business. What I don't know is what the industry or the market will present us. And so we may capture at or better than the share we've grown into, but that may be of a smaller pie in the context of what 2021 looks like relative to 20. So what's sustainable? What's sustainable is what we're in control of. And what is in question is what the market presents. But I'm confident in you know, our ability to capture our growing share, if not better, in a market that may or may not look like the one we just left. So when you laid out medium-term targets last year at the Investor Day, you qualified it with a very important phrase saying, these are based on a normalized operating environment. Now, you had no idea how, how much that phrase might resonate in the days ahead, but it was anything but normalized over the course of the year. How do you think about those targets now? Not that we're in a normalized environment, but how do you think about that at a time with there's such great uncertainty about the course of the economy, the activity our clients are going to pursue, and you know what the environment that we're going to be operating in over the next couple of years is going to look like? Well, we had no idea how prophetic we would be in the context of you know putting that sort of caveat out there. But you're right to say, among the things we didn't have foresight on was just the dramatic turn of events involving COVID. I mean, what we were thinking in the context of putting that out there is that you know, if the market ground much slower, meaning we went into kind of more of a recessionary tone, then we're only as good as the opportunity set that we play in. And that was really the thought going in. What played out over the course of 2020 was anything but normal 
But what it did present were kind of unique opportunities for Goldman to do candidly what it does best, which is step into the service of its clients. And, you know, when clients needed during the early days of the pandemic needed to re-sculpt or remanage their own risk and look to us to make a market in liquid or illiquid securities, we ran to it and not away from it. And, you know, that proved economically, you know, or financially positive for us. And so we didn't anticipate this market. This market presented opportunities where we could be in the service of clients. On the core question of how do I feel about the targets, as I said the other day publicly, I think we feel very confident in our ability to achieve them. In fact, if anything, I think looking back on 2020, we're probably as convicted around the objectives we set for ourselves as we were even back last January, meaning the need to pivot to less capital intensive activity, more important now than we knew. The ability to create a more durable set of revenue stream, more relevant to us now than it even was then. You know, the ability to run to and for our clients, undeniably more relevant now than it was then. And so, again, not that we saw all of this coming, but in retrospect, I think, you know, the performance of the firm was validating more than it was repudiating, you know, of what we set out for ourselves as objectives a year ago. So one of the other goals of the Investor Day was to literally open up the firm, be more transparent, you know, let people in the secret temple, see what happens inside here. How has the firm done on that front and how has it affected the way people operate here over the last year or so? Well, I'd like to think that we get an A, honestly, in the category of transparency and engagement. And I say that on a number of levels, but of course, the investor community will be the final arbiter of that. But as we said earlier, we recast our segments more to reflect a much more transparent view into the way in which you know, we run the firm. In the context of our earnings calls, now both David and I, as the CEO and CFO, do those together. And we have presentations that accompany them in order that we can give our investor base and various constituencies a much better feel than just to hear anybody on a phone sort of talk about results, but we give more color, more flavor, more data and information. The fact that we had an investor day was kind of an unknown proposition at this firm for the many years that I've been here. And I think to do the update and just look at the volume of information that we've now put into the hands of the market about how the firm operates, I think we're no longer the secret temple. And I think that's inherently a good thing for our employees, for our shareholders, and for a variety of different constituencies. And I don't think we've given up much in the way of our competitive standing, you know, by putting that information out there and being more transparent. I think if anything, we probably have brought ourselves an added measure of credibility, you know, with a variety of different constituencies. So I can't talk to the CFO at Goldman without talking about capital. (laughs) The current firm consistently has capital requirements that are set essentially by the Fed in accordance with its stress testing protocols. A lot of that was done, you know, right before the pandemic, the requirements But, you know, one, we had a real life stress test in the real world. And then the Fed has since run some alternative models over the course of last year. How do you think about stress testing and what it means for the firm and how you manage the firm's capital? Well, I mean, at a baseline, it is our reality. And so, you know, we need to manage the firm such that we can be pretty quick and nimble in the context of capital based on what the Fed will otherwise, you know, provide to us by way of requirement. And, The firm has a long history of that. 
it was certainly tested in the context of the last 12 to 15 months. As you rightly say, we lived through a stress test and the Fed was, you know, best they could giving us their view on where we needed to live. And we were surprised, obviously, in the context of the results of 2020. But that notwithstanding, you know, the firm rose quickly to the occasion and put ourselves in a position where we operate at a buffer to our minimum. And we operated a buffer, not purely as a defensive move, but frankly, as an offensive move, meaning I always want our businesses to be in a position where they can suddenly be in the service of our clients without worrying that they are running afoul of our minimum capital levels. And so that's why you run a buffer. It's more offensive for us than it is defensive. But this firm has a very quick response time. It was true back when tax law changes happened in 17 and we needed to adapt to sort of changing burdens in capital. It happened in CCAR 2020. And then obviously we had the interim CCAR, which is not binding, but nonetheless reflected kind of a lower uh, capital requirement, at least implied by the firm. The one thing we control and the one thing we can do is work to execute on our strategy, which is we are intending to take down the stress loss capital intensity of the business. The pivot to alternatives and third-party funding from on-balance sheet investing is a critical example of that. And so we're doing what we can to lower the perception of the capital density and intensity of the firm. And our view is that the CCAR test will follow. Not leaving that alone, we are otherwise engaged with the Fed as we had a very public petition of the Fed on the CCAR results last year to sort of point out areas where we don't think the Fed's models necessarily comport with kind of the idiosyncratic sort of nature of our own business. Now, whether we're successful on that petition or not, we'll see, but we're taking action ourselves to put us in a better position, both with respect to capital objectively, but equally with respect to where, you know, the Fed's models and CCAR ultimately, you know, yield. You know, there wasn't really, you alluded to this, there wasn't really a playbook for addressing the crisis. There never is. Not one that I found. Right. So you've held a lot of different leadership roles at the firm. Were there experiences that helped guide you through navigating the crisis last year? I saw a sign in front of a store the other day that said, stay calm and carry on, which, you know, sounded like a very British statement. And I think that's been true of the various crises that I've sort of worked through, which is, I think, the organizations that do best, and I think this one hones pretty tight to it, actually stays calm and, you know, comes together with kind of careful and deliberative moves about how it's going to comport itself and the like. It's an organization that is always at the ready. It doesn't always know what it's at the ready for, but it's at the ready. And the fact that people kind of rally to and don't run away from challenges and circumstances that beset the firm, I think only sort of point kind of the strength of the organization. And so there was no playbook. There was no playbook on the weekend of March 14th and 15th to say, what do you do when there's an operational seizure in the broad banking industry and how do you act? But, you know, people rally and ideas are exchanged and the organization acts and reacts, you know, fairly quickly and efficiently. But ultimately, it stays calm and, you know, commits itself to what's right and always holds the client as at the true north. And I think those are variables that equip the firm to react to a crisis, not one that looks like the other. And in this particular one, I think it no doubt helped that never once have the banks been seen as kind of the epicenter or the protagonist. 
perhaps as people thought about in the financial crisis of a decade or more ago. And so that helped circumstances. But, you know, I think we carried forward. And so while there was no plan, there was no look at Section 4, page 3, there's a certain, you know, tone and demeanor and cadence to the way this organization responds to crisis that served it well again. So beyond the pandemic, a defining focus for 2020 was, unfortunately, but maybe have some good long-term effects, the quest for racial equity and social justice in the wake of George Floyd's murder and other tragic events of that sort. How did the firm address those issues? And are there any other themes that were prominent in 2020 outside or beyond the pandemic? Well, I think the firm turned to a greater reliance on kind of an open forum and dialogue, which oddly enough, was easier to facilitate using Zoom than it probably would have been in a more normal period where we would have convened a town hall and who knows who would have attended and it didn't work and I wasn't at office and so on and so forth. And so in a kind of unique way, the fact that we were all home, but tuned in and engaged over Zoom made that connectivity oddly easier. And it made it easier to bring to the fore a whole host of different issues that rose over the course of the year. You know, you were focused on, you know, the petition for racial equity and the challenges along racial lines. And there were a range of other social issues that came up over the course of the year, not least of which was the social challenge and dynamic of COVID. But all of these were sort of spoken about in a kind of Zoom town square. And I thought that that was really healthy. And I think all of us at the firm can sort of put ourselves back to you know, the one, two or several kind of Zoom town halls that we had as a firm or as a partnership around racial equity. And they became charged and emotional and in some sense raw. And in that regard, quite effective at hitting kind of everybody, even those that sort of thought of themselves as being more advanced thinkers on the topic. But it hit at issues that people were not entirely aware of or attuned to. And I thought that was quite healthy and only arose, you know, by virtue of the moment we were in. So I think a lot of us were happy to put last year behind us and hope for the future. For you, what are you most excited about for the firm in 2021 and beyond? Well, I think for the firm, you know, I I think 2021 is a year of execution more than it is kind of a year of proclamation, meaning I think we opened 2020 with our investor day and kind of ended it with a reprise of Investor Day. And we executed extraordinarily well, as you and I have been talking over the last couple of minutes. But I think 2021 is going to be a year where there's certainly aspiration to achieve or go back to a period of normalcy. And I think the firm needs to put its nose to the grindstone and execute to what it has set out for itself. And I think we're structurally in a better place to do it, having lived through 2020, and having accomplished a decent amount of what we set as an aspiration for ourselves by 2022. And so I think 2021 is the year of execution, very clearly. And how about for you personally? What are you looking forward to this year? Maybe making it outside of the New York City town limits? That would be nice. Listen, I mean, living for the day where we're not wearing a mask, that there's not a swab up our collective noses, you know, that we're back in a bar and talking to people and, you know, you and I are in a room together talking about issues germane to the firm. I mean, it's small things in life, honestly, that would be a big giant first step back to sort of normalcy. And I'm 
optimistic that we'll get there. I think notwithstanding the sort of initial challenges of the vaccine, you know, my every hope and expectation is that there'll be ample doses in the short frame and people will be getting vaccinated faster. But I think David was right as to what he said on the earnings call, which is if we don't achieve that, the prospect of economic growth becomes more challenging. But, you know, I'm marginally more optimistic that, in fact, we will, notwithstanding the challenges. And that'll bring the small things back in life that I think we crave. I heard somebody say the other day that they never thought that they would say this, but they have a craving to go to Newark Airport and get on a plane. And, you know, that says everything about just the desire to get back to kind of what we knew. Yeah, if you're pining away for LaGuardia, then it's really, really desperate times. Um, even, but even that's new, Jake. So like there's reason, <laughs> there's, reason to be, there's reason to be optimistic. All right. Well, Stephen, thank you for joining us today. Always great to have you on. My pleasure. That concludes this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. Thank you very much for listening. And if you enjoyed this show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. In case you missed it, check out our other episode this week with Alec Phillips, Chief Political Economist for Goldman Sachs Research on the policy outlook under the brand new Biden administration. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, January 20th in the year 2021. Thanks for listening. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.